Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 16 of Spill the OT podcast. And today we are interviewing with Kelvin, and he is an occupational therapist who went to school in the Philippines and has since moved to the United States. So he shares his experiences on what school and what work life looked like in the Philippines versus the U.S. And he just shares a lot about the cultural differences as well as, you know, just what treatments look like over there versus over here. So it's a really cool interview and he has a lot to say. I do have to apologize. I had a very naughty puppy in the middle of our interview who just kept barking. So you're gonna hear him in the background and I'm sorry. Good news is I am going to purchase a microphone. Did you know that I've been recording on my laptop without a microphone? I think it's time. Now that we're at episode 16, I should order a mic. So I ordered one tonight. It's Amazon Prime in its way over. So hopefully next time you hear me, the quality will be a little bit better. But um, until then, you'll have to deal with me and my puppy. Before we get too far, I want to say a big thank you to those who have rated and reviewed the podcast. I want to thank Two Kids Mama OT. She wrote 10 years and a mom. I am loving this podcast. I've been in OT for almost 10 years and have lots of passions. It's so great to hear what others are doing and think about how this can relate to what I'm doing. Thank you for your honest conversations about our field. It's important for all of us to hear this. Thank you so much for writing in. That is just really, really sweet, and I appreciate it. And, you know, if you want to come on here, please do. And I'm not just referring to Two Kids Mama. If you listening would like to come on here, then just email me at spilltheot at gmail.com and we can get you on here. So I did promise a listener on Instagram to talk about productivity. And you guys, I'm like overwhelmed with the differences in productivity. So I did two Instagram posts, um, two Insta stories where I asked people to respond what their productivity ratings were. And it is so varied, I'm not even sure where to begin. In with skilled nursing facilities and inpatient rehab because I can understand it a little bit better. It looks like there was one person who had 65% productivity. She was well below average. The majority of people were between 85 to 98. 8%. There was only, I think, two people at 98%, which is crazy. If you are at 98%, please talk to your supervisor. That's not a healthy amount to work. There were a handful of people who were in the 75 to 80% productivity, but I'd say overwhelmingly most people were in that like 90 to 95 range which just seems like a lot, you guys. I'm tired just looking at it. My productivity in inpatient rehab is about 85%. I feel like it's busy, but it's manageable. I'm kept on my toes and, you know, some days I'm sweating, especially if I have like max assist or dependent transfers back to back. But Overall, I think 85% is pretty manageable. You can go to the bathroom and you can do a little bit of documentation without feeling like you are being run into the ground. Um, For school systems, so productivity is a little bit different. It's caseloads. So a caseload might be consultations, which are students that are on your radar. They're not being seen for direct services, but they are on the OT radar. You might be consulting with 
different members of the team, most likely it's their special ed teacher, but it could be classroom teachers, it could be um, PT, it could be speech pathology, it could be it could be psych, it could be for a variety of reasons. So the differences among states and among districts within the same state is just so staggering. So I would say the lower average was between like 24 to 35 students on caseload and the frequency is what kind of sets it apart. So some students might be seen for three times a week. Some students might be seen for two times a week. Some are seen for once a week. Some are just seen once a month. It all depends on the student. So these caseload numbers are really challenging to just give blankly because it means different things depending on the actual caseload and frequency. So it's just such a huge range. I don't even know how to put it. So that was definitely the lower end was between like 24 to 35. Okay, the middle, what seemed like most people had was about 40 to 45 students on their caseload um, and that included kids on consultation. Then there was like another middle group between 50 to 60. That was another big area where people seemed to their caseloads topped out at. And then there were the crazy schools that made me so stressed out learning about it I couldn't even like handle it. There were some schools that had like between 70 to 90 even schools had over 100 kids on caseload. There was an OT who travels to 12 different schools. I can't imagine traveling between 12 different schools. Right now I travel between five different schools and now that I've been here a couple years it's not that bad. I know the schools pretty well but oh my god 12 schools is so many. I just can't imagine. Okay so I know that's not really answering the question but my short long answer is that it is super varied in the school system. It's super varied across all settings across the entire country and I'm speaking just about the U.S. right now but caseloads and productivity are very varied. I heard from one person in a psych unit and she said that her caseload is at about 80% so that seemed a little bit higher than I was expecting. I don't know why I thought it might be lower but she said hers is at 80%. And then home health, I don't have any experience on home health. So if you are listening and you do home health, can you please volunteer to come on here and talk to us about home health in general as well as caseload because the answers I got all involved units. Some were like 24 units and I have no idea what that means. Honestly, it's like a different language. So I'm not sure what the units mean and I think we need an expert to come on here and clarify for us because... The units don't mean a thing to me, and I'm not sure how to break that down for you. So I apologize, but I can't really speak to home health. And then outpatient. I heard from outpatient pediatric therapists. I did not hear from any outpatient adult therapists, but the PD therapist said that theirs was about 90%, and I heard from two of them. So yeah, 85 and 90% for those two. But the bottom line is... There's a huge discrepancy, there's a huge variety, and I think a lot of us have to advocate for ourselves and our team because there's a big difference between caseload and workload, and if you feel like what you're doing is not manageable, then it's probably not. I think a lot of us 
are expected to do a huge amount of productivity, that's not very sustainable. So if you're in a place where the turnover rate is really high, then it might be worth a conversation with your manager, even though I know it's probably difficult and uncomfortable, but maybe just you know, have some thoughts about potentially talking to them about your caseload and productivity. All right. Anyway, let's get Calvin on the line and he's going to share about his experiences in the Philippines and the United States. Hi, I'm Calvin Esguera, um, occupational therapist. I've been practicing for six years, basically practiced two years in the Philippines and four years here in the United States. I graduated in the Philippines um, with a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy. Um, my experience is like started in a hospital, started doing some splinting and then practice some outpatient pediatrics, home care, and then um, was sent here in the United States, practiced in or practicing in skilled nursing, outpatient home health. So more in geriatric setting. Been started practicing um, lymphedema as well uh, for the past, um, maybe I would just say two months. So far, still learning a lot of things, practicing here in the United States. So did you say that you were sent here? Kind of. <laughs> what happened is, um, so I had no plans of coming here. My coworkers, they're the one who really wanted to come here. And I just joined them with like interview or orientation, how to come here. And I was like, oh, I think it's cool to have like an OTR uh, on my name. So I went with them, did orientation, did all the exams. And unfortunately, I'm the one who, were, who passed all of the exams. And it was um, the 24th of December, 2014. And I had no clue that they just, the company here just um, called me and said that you need to leave the Philippines in three days. Whoa. So it was like more of a surprise. So you were doing this with your coworkers back in the Philippines and then because mm -hmm. you passed all your tests, they ended up recruiting you here and took you within three days? Yep. Uh, December 24th, we were having our Christmas dinner. And then suddenly they called me, you need to live before the new year. That's wild. So do you have a commitment? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did have a three-year commitment with them. So I worked with them. And then the company that they're partnered with here in the United States, so they absorbed me. So I'm still working in the same facility, like same company. Okay, cool. So what type of schooling did you do in the Philippines? Um, so in the Philippines, back then, um, we, we only have a bachelor's degree, but it's more of a weird kind of bachelor's degree because it's a five-year bachelor's degree, almost like a six years because we don't almost take summer breaks. And I remember we have a couple of semesters that we're having 32 units per semester. So it's from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. of schooling and no online courses. Everything you have to go to school from 7 a.m. to like almost 7 p.m. from Sunday to Saturday. Oh, wow. And what type of courses would you take? Were they more didactic or were they more lab-based courses where it was hands-on? So how it goes is our first, I would say, a year and a half. It's full of, you know, basic subjects, algebra, chemistry, all of those stuff. By you hit like second year or third year, then we'll take a lot of lecture and lab. So I remember when I was in my third year, so we were well, we were having from classes from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and our last subject was um, anatomy and most of our professors are, are doctors so we had to dissect 
cadaver until like 7 p.m. So after class, we had to go out, me and my class, classmates, and eat dinner. So it was like kind of weird after seeing, you know, a cadaver, then we'll go straight and eat dinner and eat like burger or steak. So oh it was kind of a, an experience. <laughs> I can't even imagine because I remember just the smell of my clothes after working with the cadaver. I can't imagine going to eat with that. Yeah, and and so we have this five-year program, but our last year is a 12 months of clinicals. So instead of having just, you know, a couple of clinicals, we have a full year of, I would say, two and a half months per clinicals. So we have clinicals from April to April of, you know, of the whole year for our clinicals. Oh, wow. So this program sounds like you need quite a bit of stamina. I mean, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., pretty much full year Around. that's a commitment yeah and same thing with our clinicals we do our clinicals from monday to friday and then we have to go back to our school by saturday to take some exams to prepare us for our board exam and our clinicals it's it's very exciting because um there's very few selected hospitals and clinics that accepts we call it in, interns you're an intern if you're in your fifth year so we basically have like multiple universities in one hospital one clinic so it's it's fun because you meet other students occupational therapy students on the same hospital so it's more of a little bit of a competition but you learn a lot from different schools as well okay during your clinical were you only in that one building or would you switch settings so yeah so we like me my experience when i did my clinicals we have like one clinical from for a pediatric clinic we have one in a psych setting and and then I had one in more of like an outpatient hospital setting and then one inpatient setting and one community-based rehab setting. Yeah, as much as possible, universities want you to have, to be able to experience all of the different settings. So this is really cool. You ended up doing like five different settings then for your, what, I would consider a level two field work. Yes. Um, yeah. So I consider it a level level two because our level one is during our fourth year. So it's most more of like just once a week clinic visit. But on the second for the second level, it's basically almost like the clinics expect you to be prepared once you enter your internship. They treat you like you're a professional. And the funny thing is it's a whole year thing. And then it's more, we have like a demerits and merit system. If you come to the, to the class, to the clinic late, you have demerits. And at the end of your clin clinical, they'll count your demerits and you'll have extra days to go to the clinic if you have a lot of demerits. Oh, well, that's kind of nice, though, that it's not so much like a pass-fail then because you get an opportunity to make it up at the end. Well, um, well, basically, you can also fail if you didn't do good in, you know, in your cl um, clinicals. But it's more of the discipline. If you come to the clinic late, if you don't submit your your notes on time, and we do handwritten notes. When I was doing my clinicals, there's no, they don't like do a lot of computer or electronic notes and we do like a lot of quizzes a lot of reportings you have to do like more of um, projects every every clinic that you are at so it's very very more into discipline 
to how to be a good uh, clinician. So did you find that many people did fail when you were out there? I had a couple of classmates who failed because they don't submit their notes on time or they failed those quizzes, the, the exams in the clinics, um, or as, as easy as you didn't show up on time on your first day of, of clinic clinicals. Oh, yeah. I can see why you would fail if you didn't even show up on your first day. That's not a great sign. Mm -hmm. The way that we do it here, at least for my program, was we started off with level one, which was pretty much all hands off. We didn't really touch any patients. It was more just observation. And then our level twos sound a little bit more like yours, but much less intense. We only had 12 week rotations and we had two of them. And then you could do an addition one, but you didn't have to. So the majority of people were like, eh, if I don't have to, then I'm not going to. I'm just going to start working. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I kind of realized after handling a couple of students. So I had a couple of students. So most of the time, you know, I'll ask them, so what setting do you really want to, you know, pursue? Um, but you know, the problem is they, they weren't able to try all of the different settings. So all they have in mind is what they've tried, which is basically usually, you know, one hospital, one school setting, or one outpatient pediatrics, one skilled nursing. So I felt like it's, it's, there's a point that how would you know what you really wanted to do if you haven't tried all of the different settings? Yeah, exactly. And I knew that I wanted to do pediatrics, but they don't even offer that unless it's your third additional one. And at that point, you'd be paying for tuition and you wouldn't be able to graduate on time. You'd be graduating in the winter semester. So it was like they kind of stack the cards against you to not want to take that additional training, which is a shame. Yeah, wow. So that's basically your adding more school time if you want to try um, different you know settings yeah so then it was like well I might as well just start working but then you're out yeah. there working without the training so it's kind of backwards so I think the only disadvantage of course is we don't have a skilled nursing setting in the Philippines oh you don't yep we don't have skilled nursing so when I first came here it was like a total adjustment and that's the setting that you work in now yep I work in skilled nursing I will never forget when I first came over here it was January 4th of 2015 I had no idea what winter is because in the Philippines it's always 90 degrees and when I came here it was winter and my first uh, day uh, my boss just handed me a six hour of work and I had no idea on what skilled nursing is <laughs> So my first patient, when I was reading the patient's diagnosis, it was a UTI or, or whatever um, infection that is. So I, in my mind, I was like, what treatment should I do with a patient with a UTI? Because in the Philippines, if a patient has a, you know, if someone has an infection or whatever, doctor just gives them medication, go home, take your medication and die. So, you know, it's a very different practice. Um, especially in the Philippines, people doesn't go to rehab, to therapy, unless they had stroke or they had heart attack or, you know, some orthopedic cases, fracture. So it's, a, it's more concentrated, like we were trained more on how to handle neurological disorders or orthopedic. So those are the biggest like practice that we do. And of course, also cardiac and pulmonary. So major diagnosis, big diagnosis. So you know the types of patients that you typically see in a skilled nursing facility? Where would those people end up in the Philippines? They would go home? even if they weren't really able to walk or get out of bed? Yeah, um, because 
in the Philippines, we don't have Medicare. Very few people has insurance. So most of the people pay out of, out of their pockets. So, you know, it's, it's their, if they wanted to go to the therapy because they feel that they're weaker, so then it's more of a voluntary thing that they'll see their doctor. Um, I feel weaker than a month ago. So, and I had infection a month ago. So can I do therapy? But for a hospital really to like push, oh, you need to go to this place to have rehab. It's very seldom because it's more of an optional thing because you have to pay privately. So I'm curious about the patients that you saw in the Philippines. Were they more likely to participate because it was voluntary? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, most of my clients are those who had stroke and wanted really to go back and work again, be able to really do what they were doing before. Or some are families who wanted to have to to for their parents to be able to, you know, to be independent again. But, you know, with our culture, we take care of our elders so it's a very different family dynamics that you know older people lives in the kids house so there's always a caregiver or someone that can provide help to geriatrics population oh okay well i like the thought of that because i think a lot of people would prefer to be in their own home so i definitely can appreciate that dynamic so i think that's the reason why there's no skilled nursing facility in the Philippines. Yeah, I like that. You know, I understand that here we have to do things a little bit different, but I appreciate a culture who's able to watch over their their own. Hey everybody, I am so genuinely excited to tell you about MedBridge. So MedBridge is a continuing ed site and they have tons of continuing ed courses all available online. You can stream them at your own pace. They also have home exercise plans, which are incredible. You can literally build your own plan with pictures that can perfectly suit whatever client you're working for. It's honestly so awesome. And you get unlimited CEUs. And these CEU courses are just really intriguing and exciting. Like it's, I've done continuing ed online in the past and these ones that they select are just very much in line with what I find interesting. And I feel like you might find them interesting as well. So are you struggling with finding the resources for your time for CEUs with almost 2000 accredited evidence-based streaming courses, live CEU webinars, MedBridge is your all-in-one solution. And actually, if you use my code, it's spill the OT, capital S, capital T, capital OT. So spill the OT, one word, capital S, capital T, capital OT. You can get $175 off of your year-long subscription, which is awesome. I mean, that's like significant amount of money off. So if you are interested, please go check it out. Again, use the code spill the OT, capital S, capital T, capital OT, all one word. All right. I really hope that you go check it out. Enjoy. How much does school cost in the Philippines? Like how much did you end up spending? Wow. My, during my time, it was only maybe per semester is a thousand dollars and it's a private Catholic university where I go to. Maybe the most expensive would be $1,500 for per semester for schooling. Oh, okay. That's pretty nice. What was the process like to get your license and credentials transferred over to the U.S.? Uh, so first thing is you need to pass our local board exam. Um, so that's another thing. Our local board exam, you can only take 
it in a very specific days of the year. It's usually February and August, and it's a two-day exam. The first day is a whole day of anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, pathophysiology. The second day is OT application. So it's a two-day exam, so you have to pass it first, and then I have to submit to OTED and NBCOT, all of my credentials that I'm a board passer in the Philippines. I have to pass my my research paper, uh, my curriculum, that it should match the master's degree here before I was able to come here. So after that, they'll assess it and then they say, oh, um, I think there's no nothing missing on your curriculum. It's the same as our master's program here in the United States. Then I took the board exam in the Philippines. There's some designated places there that we were able to take the board exam. And then we have to take an English exam, a very strict English exam to be able to come here, which I, that was the hardest exam that I took my entire life. And then they have to apply for our working visa or immigrant visa before we can come here. So it's a bit of a lengthy process and you have to really be prepared is what it sounds like yep yeah uh, we were very like prepared like even the company that you know brought us here they put us on a lot of like reviewing a lot of on how it is you know how it is to practice here in the united states Wow. Well, I'm very impressed you were able to do all that. I don't know if I would have the stamina or the commitment to make it work. So good for you. Yeah, it was an adventure because when I came here, I was alone. And like what I've said, from a 90 degrees weather to a negative 10 when I first came here. So it was a crazy experience. And, you know, learning the culture, learning the practice here, um, learning Medicare, Medicaid, or, you know, different uh, payer system here. So I feel like, you know, little by little, I'm starting to really learn. What was the most striking difference between treatment here and in the Philippines as far as the treatment that you were doing with your patient? Um, I guess because we don't have Medicare in the Philippines, you know, everything is um, out of pocket. We were able to do, explore more different uh, treatment strategies in the Philippines more than here. Because of course here with the Medicare, we were so limited with time, um, whatever is time is designated to the patient that's the only time that we can do to the patient and all of you know the laws and regulations here back then in the philippines i remembered that you know because all of them are are privately paying we usually even like really go to a golf course and spend two or three hours in the golf course doing our therapy or go to a tennis court, a basketball court, do the treatment there. I had a pediatric patient before that we went to a, a, to an amusement park or to a barber shop and do our treatment there. So I think that's the advantage, but of course they're paying out of pocket, which is also kind of difficult. So and, uh, compared to here in the United States, of course, with a time, um, time Time limitations um, were kind of always like rushing. Um, like for example, earlier I had a, a patient that I was uh, doing a lymphedema management, but of course in the skilled nursing I was very limited to an hour of treatment. So I have to do all of the all of the manual lymph drainage, the bandaging, plus the self care part in one hour. So that's I think is the biggest difference. 
So wait, you would actually go to an amusement park with just one patient or would you kind of group together similar patients and then all go to the barber shop or wherever your day trip was? Uh, for one patient, as long as, you know, the family is willing to pay me per hour, how, many, how much time I spend with a, with a client in wherever place we're going. So if, if I was with a patient and we went to a golf course, so the, pay, the family was actually, actually paid me three hours that I was there in the golf course. That's um, so, of course, but those are more of the wealthy clients. That's really cool. So are there any other big things or anything that you'd like to share about the differences between the Philippines and the U.S. or just things that you weren't expecting when you got here to the U.S.? Um, I think um, in the Philippines, because of course we don't have the, the machines or the technology that what, you know, what we have here in the United States. So in the Philippines, like what I've said, we have a community-based practice where you go to the community to treat sometimes people who are homeless or people that lives behind a factory, for example, that lives, you know, those people that really need therapy, but they, in some way they don't have, you know, the money to do therapy. Um, so we were kind of trained how to improvise on whatever we can find in our surrounding. We were trained to like make our own cane out of, you know, a trunk, a tree trunk, or how to make a button hook out of wire. And so it was it was kind of a good training, actually. Like, for example, treating a patient with cerebral palsy, but you don't have even a pillow. So how can you position the patient well using just your body? Yeah, so I think that was one of the, uh, the good... It's a good thing, in a way, because you learn how to improvise, but you... It was really a hard work. Yeah, I would bet. And I know that in skilled nursing facilities, a lot of times they don't pay for much equipment. Obviously, it sounds like more equipment than what you're describing your experience for those people in the Philippines. But I'm sure you're able to carry over those skills now that you're here because, you know, sometimes even just getting like therapy is a treat. Yep. Um, I think, yeah, so like I'm kind of becoming like a jack of all trades when it comes to our facility. You know, um, I'll just, I ask for a thermoplast from our company instead of buying, you know, individual splint for the patient. So I improvise on how I do my splint, even though we don't really have materials to make our own splint. So in a way, I guess, you know, the facility is also saving some money <laughs> of me not requesting for a lot of things and just improvising on whatever I can find. Yeah, I think that's a really cool skill that you have. Now, what about, and this is just me being curious, like what's the biggest cultural difference between the Philippines and the U.S.? So that's a broad question, but I'm just curious. A couple of things. I think the biggest one is we don't have assisted living, independent living facility. So when I first came over here and did, you know, some meetings with the family, I had trouble on how to decide where should the patient go next if they cannot, you know, go back to their house. Because like what I've said in the Philippines, after therapy or during therapy, they go back or they go to their kid's place, their children's place um, to stay there, to live there if they need help. And, you know, money-wise, it's easier to get 
um, a caregiver in the Philippines, but not a trained caregiver, of course. Um, and then the other thing, I think in the Philippines, we had 1,700 islands and maybe there's hundreds of dialects. We don't really understand each other if they will speak their dialect or their language. Um, so I did a traveling job before that I was a consultant in different small clinics, uh, pediatric clinics, and I kind of trained different businesses on how to deal with person with disability. So every time I travel different islands, if they speak their language or their dialect, I wouldn't be able to understand them. So sometimes we'll speak in English to be able to understand each other. Oh, that's cool. I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, so we're very Americanized. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like, um, so every time I have a student, which uh, I would say in a year, I always take students, maybe three students a year. So I always try to teach them how to activity analyze more. So most of the time, I'll, I'll tell them, oh, you're doing grooming right now, right? So what do you think is what, you know, PNF is this? Or how can you implement um, or incorporate um, BOBAT or NDP strategy while the patient is doing, you know, their grooming. So just to challenge more of the students here. And at the same time, I provide a lot of lectures for them, individual lectures about PNF, NDP, Spoon's Room. Um, now I kind of teaching them also, you know, more of the lymphedema management. Um, so I try to really share whatever I no to my students. That's awesome. I just thought of a question about the patients that you would work with in the Philippines. How long did you typically treat them for? Um, so most of the time, it depends on what they want to achieve or what their goal is. Like I had a patient that I've been, I've seen him for years. He used to be an, a surgeon, a doctor who had a stroke. So we started from even from oral motor to be able to stand up. We trained him to even like going to his favorite restaurant. And one of my patients also, I've trained him. That's the one that I went to a golf course. So I've seen him for like two years because he wanted to. He wanted to get better. He wanted to get stronger. He wanted to be more independent. So limit-wise, it's more of like a financial limit. So if they can, you know, pay and continue therapy and we think we still have some things that we can work on, then why not? I see. So on the one hand, it's kind of nice because you get to do whatever treatment the patient wants. But on the other hand, it's basically whoever can afford therapy is who's going to get therapy. Yes. Um, but in the in other way too we have the community-based rehab we have like a small clinic um, we had patients there that had been going for years because he enjoyed therapy and every time we or they felt that they're getting weaker they go to our small clinic that is connected to a church and we've seen them with until now some of them are still going to that clinic and most of the time that's the time that our interns or our or those who are, who are doing clinicals treats the patient and just one therapist kind of supervising the students oh so if somebody wanted to make progress, regardless of money, as long as they show up and they have potential to improve, they can get services? Yeah, in those um, community-based rehabs that we usually put on with together with different universities. So like each university has their own community-based rehab and in different towns or different provinces in the Philippines. And, you know, we try to reach out to as many people as we can. Wow. 
Wow, that's kind of nice. Okay. Oh, uh, I think another another difference with the practice is we don't have OTAs or PTAs. So everybody's a PT or an OT. So basically, we don't have any trouble of who's gonna evaluate the patient because everybody's everybody can evaluate patients. Now, what is OT known for in the Philippines? Do you have to constantly clarify your role and what you do, or is it a little bit more defined? Um. So let's put it this way. There's only 4,000 something registered occupational therapists in the Philippines. And I would say half of us are overseas in different countries. So there's very few occupational therapists in the Philippines. Um, so we're not really known. And we're if we're known, we're more known towards the pediatrics handling special kids. We're not very known to adult. And most of the time, our adult practice are hand rehab. But most of the practices in the Philippines are in pediatrics mostly um, outpatient pediatric setting. And until now, my parents doesn't know what occupational therapy is. <laughs> to be honest, especially I've been practicing in different fields. So, I know. Honestly, sadly. sometimes I don't even think doctors know what occupational therapy is. I'll be with a patient and then they'll be like, okay, I'll let you get back with PT. And I'm like, really? You see it on my name badge. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And, you know, it's sad that, you know, I feel like every time, you know, someone goes, oh, you need to go to occupational therapy because you need some upper extremity exercises. It's just, you know, it's just very frustrating. Like when did a description of occupational therapy is, you know, treating patient because they have weaker upper extremity, kind of sad, but mm -hmm. it's, it's more of like how to educate people more what occupational therapy is. You're right. And I think like just taking the opportunity if somebody does get it wrong to just politely correct them. I used to just kind of stand there and smile. But now I'll just like briefly my one or two sentence say like what I'm doing. And it helps my own peace of mind if I at least advocate in those small ways. Yeah. Yeah. So like every time, you know, I always get those every time I do the evaluation, you know, the family will ask like, oh, so what is the difference between physical therapy? therapy and occupational therapy so I will always tell them um you know what physical therapy will help your mom or your dad to walk but as a job is of occupational therapy you know what I will not let him or her walk naked so then I'll explain to them so I'll train we'll train them you know how to get dressed again how to be able to go to the bathroom on their own again you know I, I'm still you know trying to figure out how would it be more you know easier for them to understand and a funny way to explaining what occupational therapy is. I love that. I've used a similar thing where I'll, where I'll say PT can help you get up the stairs to the bathroom. OT will help you once you're in the bathroom, but I'm totally going to steal your line so that your <laughs> doesn't have to be naked. I like that. Yeah, I can't remember who or where I heard it, but you know, I've, I've been using it ever since. So yeah, so, um, but you know, I feel like, you know, our field is still... Uh, a very, very, what do you call this? Uh, on a baby stage, on a development stage. So, yeah. Which is, you know, it, which is, which is nice uh, because we have a lot of still growth. But once in a while, I feel like, you know, some are kind of overlapping as well. You know, some people feels like we're overstepping their practice. So it's, it's, it's always like, 
a long discussion. What am I doing? What you are, you know, what is your part on on, the, on this kind of this? Yeah, exactly. And my other line that I'll use a lot is that we come at it from different lenses. I'm sure you've used that too, but just we might be looking like we're doing similar tasks, but we're approaching it with a totally different lens of how we're observing and you know the functional piece to that yeah yeah because i remember one time there's a picture like a, a article picture of an occupational therapist um using a parallel bar as a treatment and i just one of my um previous students was just comment like um oh that's a physical therapy because they're using parallel bar so i had to like discuss well i'm using parallel bar for my treatment too because i'm using this to simulate grab bars in the bathroom so you know once in a while people are very like short-minded that if it's if the patient is standing up or the patient is moving that's a physical therapy thing or the patient is using a, a parallel bar that's a physical therapy thing yeah you're totally right well you probably know my question that i ask everybody so maybe you've prepped your answer but if you could do it all again would you go into occupational therapy absolutely i at first you know i had no idea what occupational therapy is I, I i went to clinicals and still had like some doubts if i still wanted to do this and actually i didn't do this when i first started working but now I feel like, you know, it's not a job. It's a vocation. It's a real vocation that you are emotionally rewarded. Like, that's why I feel like I've been working seven hour, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, but I don't get tired. I don't get stressed because I feel like there's a purpose of what, on what we are doing. It's not just we go to work and do our documentation or give the patients exercises, but we always have this goal or or a finish line for our patients that is very emotionally and psychologically for me rewarding so i don't even get stressed for my for the past six years i wouldn't say i get i got stressed doing this vocation so i treat this more of a vocation more than a job cool did i hear correctly that you work seven days a week yep seven days a week by different companies <laughs> what are you doing man <laughs> yeah so you know i enjoy it a lot I, I would say i enjoy it a lot so yeah so i'm kind of a workaholic but you know at the same time i'll work saturday four hours in the morning and still have fun in the afternoon oh, okay or in the evening so well more power to you i think it's awesome and i think your paychecks probably pay off but oh my i can't imagine working seven days i cherish my weekends like no <laughs> other yeah so i I usually like after work, I still like try to study different things. Yeah. Well, good for you. It sounds like you're a really hardworking guy. So I give you so much credit. Anything else that you'd like to put in here? If you have anything like a side project or anything you'd like to plug, you can promote that. I wouldn't say it's a side project, but um, like what I've said, one of my mentor were trying to really use this man up martial arts against neurological disorder. Um, so it's more of a mixture of everything, a mixture of PNF, Bobat, mix into one, and how we kind of use martial arts, different kinds of martial arts to help people with Parkinson's, to help people with stroke, how to and and it's uh, an exercise in a in a way, but it's more fun for them because you're 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 even like removing your stress or your anger out of you. Um, yeah. So this man up is was founded by one of my 
uh, PT friend, uh, Joffrey de-, de la Cruz, and very interesting. Um, I haven't really practiced it yet much, um, but once in a while in my outpatient practice, I will you know, give the patient a stick or I'll bring my boxing gloves and use those as a treatment strategies for the patient. Oh, that sounds cool. Where could people find out more information about that? Um, as of now, it's, it's an early stage, so, so um, I'm helping, or a um, few therapists are, is helping um, Joffrey De La Cruz on how to make this really a program. So he just did his first kind of a seminar with us on how to use this in individual patients. So soon. So I'll let you know if there's any, you know, update about this. Um, Okay. But we'll we'll keep it on the radar. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right, everybody. That's it. I hope that you all have a great week. And as always, if you can rate and review this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. And if you would like to be on the show, please email me at spilltheot at gmail.com. All right. Have a great week. Bye.